some time for our pilots and our, our leaders to figure out how to fight against the Zero. So there were some struggles between the P-40, which was very heavy, against trying to fight this very nimble, lightweight Japanese fighter. They made almost, I want to say, over 15,000 P-40 Warhawks in Buffalo during World War II. And one of the things that I thought was interesting as I was studying was that there were 45,000 workers in the Curtis factories. 45,000 people worked there. And during World War II, 75% of those workers were women. Hello, my name is Patrick Chasen. I am a writer, a historian, and retired U.S. Army officer. I live in Scotia, New York. And for the past 11 years or so, I've been kind of digging into a few interests of mine, which include travel, military history, local history here in the Schenectady, Scotia, Saratoga, Albany region. Patrick Chasen has created a multimedia presentation called Wings of Victory, aircraft production in New York State during World War II. He uh, made the presentation uh, at a gathering of the ESAM, the Empire State Aerosciences Museum, to examine New York State's role in building warplanes for the Second World War. What I have at the top of my head about that is I didn't realize, but I guess it makes logical sense, that Long Island was sort of a center for this, wasn't it? Oh, very much so. And in the presentation, uh, we trace the foundations, if you will, of the uh, New York aviation manufacturing uh, business, primarily started by a, uh, a gentleman named Glenn Curtis. Curtis started in Hammondsport, New York, which was uh, in the Finger Lakes, but uh, mm-hmm. developed two specific types of aircraft manufacture. One was land planes, those who took off and landed on the ground. That started in Buffalo, but he also saw a market for float planes, uh, seaplanes, um, and he saw Long Island as a place to develop that industry, and that's really where it started. Once you got your start on Long Island, there were other companies that came there in Glenn Curtis's footsteps, such as Grumman Mm -hmm. and Republic. Heard an anecdote, as you might expect, there's people who do podcasts all over the place, and there's one that's done specifically about Long Island, and it, it quoted a man who got involved in a building aircraft during World War II, and one of the things that sold him on aviation is he watched Lindbergh fly over Long Island on his way to Paris. Yes, he did. Uh, there were several uh, milestones in aviation history that started on Long Island. Lindbergh is the one that is most well-known, but uh, another uh, milestone started in 1911, So we're only talking maybe seven or eight years after the Wright brothers made the first powered uh, manned uh, flight in an aircraft. Eight years later, uh, this guy named Hal, what was his name? I'm sorry, I'm I'm dumping on his brain right now, but on his name, I should say. But there was an aviator who uh, flew from Long Island all the way to Long Beach, California, 
uh, the first transcontinental aircraft flight began on Long Island. And then in 1927, of course, uh, Charles Lindbergh made his uh, oceanic flight. You uh, were talking about World War II, and you mentioned the Grumman's or Grumman's company. I guess I presume Grumman was a man, and the plane that he's associated with is called the Hellcat. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So the founder of this uh, company, Leroy Grumman, he started out working for Curtis uh, as a subcontractor. Uh, in the 1920s, he decided to go out on his own and form his own aviation company. Um, they had a very close association with the United States Navy, um, building many of their fighter-type aircraft. Uh, even before World War II, the Grumman fighters were a very famous naval uh, aircraft. So in World War II, they started with a, uh, a fighter known as the F-4F Wildcat. Very, very famous, very well known, but it was a bit dated. Uh, Grumman and his engineers sat down and devised a better aircraft based on the lessons of the early air combat in World War II, and that led to the F-6F Hellcat, which is perhaps one of their most famous designs. They built many thousands of them, over 12,000 of them, 12,000 Hellcats, all at Bethpage, Long Island, and it enjoyed the best kill ratio of enemy versus allied aircraft. In other words, for every Hellcat that was shot down by the enemy, Hellcat pilots shot down 19 enemy aircraft. Yeah. So it was an extremely well-designed and uh, well-flown aircraft in World War II. What made it a good warplane? It was a compromise. It was an extremely well-thought-out compromise of firepower, lightweight, armor protection, and a powerful engine. Uh, it, it was a great use of the technology available at the time, and they just designed it right. They designed it well. It was extraordinarily durable in, in service. It was fast. It had a great range. And like I said before, it was very well armed. Can you uh, tell us about the Republic Thunderbolt? Another very famous aircraft that was designed and many of them built uh, right on Long Island, right in New York State. Uh, the Republic Thunderbolt, or the P-47, was an Army Air Force fighter plane that very much resembled the Hellcat, even though it was built by another manufacturer. It was an enormous aircraft with an extremely powerful engine, extremely well-armed, eight fifty caliber machine guns. You could hang bombs, rockets, drop tanks on this thing. And even though it was very big, it was designed to be very maneuverable and extraordinarily durable in the air. If it was hit by enemy fire, it could keep flying oftentimes, and the pilots who flew the P-47 Thunderbolt absolutely loved it. You've had a career in the uh, Army, 26 years, I believe, uh, serving the U.S. Army and also uh, in the, the National Guard. Uh, and I I'm just curious why you've—why wouldn't you, but why would you—why do you focus on aircraft production in World War II? Okay, um— I have a family history of aviation. 
Uh, I, I'm the black sheep of the family. My father and my brother both served in the Air Force. My dad actually did 40 years, if you can believe that, serving his country in the Army and the Air National Guards. Uh, my brother, Ken, uh, who's a little bit younger than I am, 14 months younger, he served for 21, 22 years in the Air Force as an officer. So we grew up, my brothers and I, my two brothers, uh, Steve is the other one, um, we all grew up uh, just kind of fascinated by aviation. Um, and the reason why I focus on aircraft is because people want to know what it was like to fly and, and to even to build these aircraft. Uh, we're starting to, you know, it's, it's going to be 80 years since the war ended here in just a few years. So history is starting to disappear if we, if we don't... Uh, occasionally keep track of it and, and, and tell those stories. You did your talk, Wings of Victory, as I mentioned, at the Empire State Aerosciences Museum, which is located at the Schenectady Airport. And there's also a, an Air National Guard base at the Schenectady Airport, and that's that's where your father flew out. And, and a little more full disclosure, I, I knew your father. He was my son's scoutmaster. Yeah, his name is Tom Chasen. He retired as a master sergeant with the Air National Guard. Um, his job was loadmaster, so he was responsible for the cargo that was in the back of the aircraft. Uh, he flew two types. Uh, the first was the C-97 Strato Freighter. It's a Boeing uh, propeller-driven aircraft. That was during the 60s. And then he flew the first uh, C-130 missions, uh, the Air National Guard in Schenectady right now operates a fleet of special C-130s. Uh, these came with skis, and he actually uh, participated in some of the missions where these ski-equipped C-130s would fly to Greenland to resupply some of the bases that were actually set up right on the Greenland ice cap. So they needed some type of aircraft that could land on snow and ice the Air Force has one squadron of C-130s that are ski-equipped. They all happen to be stationed in Schenectady. And my father was there, uh, right, really, right at the beginning of the Greenland mission. And uh, since he retired, the uh, Schenectady-based Air National Guard unit now also flies to Antarctica to resupply scientific um, base camps that are uh, on the mm -hmm. South Pole. So well, I didn't a, realize that. You mean that that happened later in the game? Your father you told me pa passed yeah. away in two thousand five, mm -hmm. uh, and I've lived here for since nineteen eighty. And the C one thirty or these four propeller um, planes are a very common sight over um, the hills of Glenville. But they they weren't. I always thought they were going to Antarctica right from the beginning. They weren't. Believe it or not, the Navy had that mission until uh, sometime, I believe, in the 1990s. I don't exactly have the, the, the date in my head, but um, those aircraft and that mission was given to the Air National Guard from the Navy. So some of those planes you see flying around wearing Air Force markings um, originally were flown by the Navy. I heard, and again, this is not true research or anything, but... Um, it seems to me I've read news accounts recently that in terms of 
supplying Antarctica and the scientific bases. They've now decided to keep the planes down in New Zealand or something like that. And it's, it's just the crews that go down there and to fly the planes. Right. Uh, the, uh, there is a season, uh, and remember, because uh, Antarctica is on the opposite side of the world, you uh, have uh, the uh, best weather is during the winter up here. It's the summer down there. So uh, to make the uh, most of the good weather that's in, in, in Antarctica, they actually base their aircraft out of Christchurch, New Zealand, and they rotate flight crews uh, in and out, depending on how many uh, weeks or months uh, you're available to perform the duty. Uh, they will um, make their operation out of uh, New Zealand. You're absolutely correct. And there is a sort of local, I don't know, pride or something in uh, connection with this mission that they have in our Antarctica and also the one apparently that your father was more familiar with going up to Greenland. Maybe I should ask you about the, the Greenland is, uh, they, that's where there are radar bases, correct? Well, there used to be. When the mission first went to the Schenectady unit, uh, those radar bases were active. They have since become obsolete. They're still there. They have decided to just leave them in place on the Greenland ice cap where the uh, Schenectady Air Guard uses Greenland today, they use it as a training base. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, taking off and landing uh, on, on the ice cap is a, is a special skill that the flight crews need to be proficient at before they go down to Antarctica. So they use Greenland primarily as a place to train on an ice runway. I believe they call it an iceway. At the talk that you uh, delivered, I mean, did you talk, uh, were there people there uh, attending who had served in the Air Guard at, uh, at Schenectady, and they must have had some interesting questions? Uh, there were many interesting questions. I did not specifically see anybody that I recognized. Of course, with, uh, with my father being in that unit, I, I, I knew or, and know, thankfully, a lot of the, uh, the retirees and some of the old-timers there. I didn't meet anyone at that particular talk, but I would say to anybody interested in finding out more about what the Air National Guard's mission in Antarctica and Greenland is, go to the Empire State's Aerosciences Museum, ESAM, in Glenville. They have a wonderful display of the Air Guard's Greenland and uh, Antarctic ice mission, complete with video. Uh, they've got all kinds of uh, uh, artifacts um, and even a mock-up of a C-130 uh, uh, cockpit for you to go look at. And out, out front, they've got um, a scale model not full size, of the um, Concorde, right? That's correct, yes. That was just recently installed, I want to say last year or the year before. But again, uh, Schenectady and this unusual mission going down to Antarctica and up to uh, Greenland uh, is kind of well-known around here. You knew my son. I forget now whether we, I brought up my the fact that my Well, I said that your father was my son's scoutmaster, and you worked as a advisor kind of to the scout troop. You're a few years older than uh, my son, uh, Robbie. I call him Robbie. The world knows him as another Bob. 
my daughter had a close girlfriend named Kelly, and she was a scientist down at uh, Antarctica. And she went and did her science and this and that. When they were coming back, they were carrying her, of course, uh, with a crew from the Schenectady Airport. And as she sat in the back of the plane, she was invited up front to sit in the cockpit because she's a woman from Schenectady. Wonderful. (laughs) That must have been a wonderful experience for her. I think it was. Now, we've talked about the World War II, the Grumman Hellcat, the Republic Thunderbolt. What are some of the other types of you know aircraft that you uh, discussed that were made in New York? Yes. We mentioned earlier that uh, Glenn Curtis, who uh, basically was the founder of aviation in New York State, or one of the founders, I should say, he had a land plane operation in Buffalo. Uh, that particular operation continued through World War II. There was another organization with his name called uh, the Curtis uh, Wright Aircraft Manufacturing Corporation. They were headquartered in Buffalo. They produced a very famous airplane called the P-40 Warhawk. Uh, If uh, you have any reading on World War II and you know about the organization called the Flying Tigers, Mm -hmm. or you saw the John Wayne movie called The Flying Tigers. That Mm -hmm. was the aircraft they flew. Uh, It was also a fighter. It was an earlier design. So the aircraft was built before World War II and actually all the way, just most of the way through World War II. Um, A decent aircraft, six fifty caliber machine guns, relatively fast. Um, They unfortunately tangled with a Japanese aircraft known as the Zero, the Mitsubishi Zero, which was extraordinarily maneuverable, and it took it took some time for our pilots and our our leaders to figure out how to fight against the Zero. Uh, so there were some struggles between the P forty, which was very heavy, uh, against trying to fight this very nimble, lightweight Japanese fighter. So we talked a little bit about that in the uh, story. They made a lot of them, though. They made almost, I want to say, over 15,000 P-40 Warhawks in Buffalo during World War II. And one of the things that I thought was interesting as I was studying uh, for this presentation was that there were 45,000 workers in the Curtis factories. 45,000 people worked there. And during World War II, 75% of those workers were women. I uh, interviewed a man not that long ago about central New York and aircraft, you know, in particular maybe during World War II, where they it was sort of the start of what became the Griffiths Air Force Base up in, up in Rome. Was there any manufacturing being done in other parts of New York aside from Buffalo and Long Island? Uh, yes but they were not necessarily making aircraft. They were making components for aircraft. Um, So in other words, in Schenectady, B-29 bomber, the very famous bomber that uh, dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended World War II, um, many components of that bomber, primarily their their, uh, defensive fire control system, were made in Schenectady. Uh, a story my mother likes to tell. Her mother, my grandmother, uh, worked 
every night for four hours after she got all the household chores done and dinner served and and, uh, the kids kind of put away, she took the trolley over to the Schenectady GE plant where she made fuses for anti-aircraft shells. Mm -hmm. So all over the state, people were making uh, war-related items. So to say that there were uh, manufacturers in Amsterdam, a huge uh, rug-making city, of course, as you know, uh, they made tents and tarps and canvas items for the military. All different types were made Mm -hmm. right in Amsterdam. And we can go on and and talk about what was made in Utica and Binghamton. Please, go ahead. Since you brought up the Amsterdam uh, connection there, that's been a frequent topic in the newspaper columns I've written about um, World War II and Amsterdam, where they would make the tents and the canvas. They also made blankets. But they also, uh, you know, each of these mills, and that would probably be true of all the mills, would have a machine shop. So I, I can't really remember exactly what they made, but it was, as you say, some some part for maybe a, a Navy airplane was also made in Amsterdam during the war. Of course. Uh, and uh, there is an excellent display uh, at the New York Military Museum in Saratoga, uh, New York. It's an old National Guard army. It's a beautiful little area. Uh, right now, as we're talking, which is the end of March uh, twenty. 23, uh, that museum is closed. They're putting a new roof on it, but they expect to have it reopened in June or July, we hope, uh, to uh, allow folks to go back in there and check out the displays of what was manufactured for World War II in New York. And it was all over the state. Every part of the state made things for the war effort, whether it was aviation or naval paint or army boots. Those were all made in New York. Patrick Chasen has created a multimedia presentation, Wings of Victory, aircraft production in New York State during World War II. Are you planning on a a book on this topic or a magazine article? I would like to uh, discuss it with uh, groups who are interested in learning more about World War II. The presentation is a, a PowerPoint multimedia show. Uh, while I do write for various magazines, uh, I don't have plans at this particular moment to put this particular presentation into a book or a magazine article. Although, never say never, it could happen at some time. Now that you've you've retired, 26 years, U.S. Army officer, and uh, also working or serving with the uh, National Guard, and and as an officer, you retired as a major? Uh, Actually, I did. And uh, a few years later, they promoted me to lieutenant colonel after I retired. So, yeah. Well, (laughs) before we started, we talked about another lieutenant colonel that we both know, and that's Rob Von Hoselen. You knew him from the uh, history uh, functions that are uh, carried on by the uh, the National Guard. And uh, Von Hoselen has been very active in reviving interest in uh, Amsterdam history because he, he moved there uh, after his uh, retirement from the uh, U.S. Army. Yes, he did. And I can't think of anybody better to uh, talk history uh, than than Rob. He's an extremely detail-oriented 
a person, but he also tells a good story. You've retired from the uh, military, and you would like to, to continue to write history? Is that your your goal? I, for, for... I have found it to be something that's growing. And I, I originally started writing history because over my 26-year career, I would learn about different stories or a, a little fact that nobody really knew about. And I would, if I had the time, I would jot down that fact and put it into a folder or that story and put it into a folder knowing that I really didn't have time as a serving military officer. They, they, they keep you pretty busy. After I retired, I kind of found that folder of ideas and said, oh, I'm going to tell these stories. So I started as a little, little bit of a blog uh, where I was writing these stories and putting it out in a blog. That was fine, but I also wanted to say maybe there's a bigger market for this than just a, 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 a blog where I'm just writing and whatever. So I focused my attentions on some World War II stories that I had kind of developing or made little notes here, little comments there. Uh, took a little bit of time. There were several editors who really, because I had not been published before, they didn't really want to take a chance on me. But then the folks at World War II History Magazine, which is a national magazine, you can find it in Barnes & Noble or some of your better bookstores that are <laughs> that are still out there if there's any bookstores left. Mm. Well, they published this, this magazine called World War II History, and he took a chance on me. Uh, and I've had about 30 to 40 articles uh, on various aspects of World War II in this particular magazine, World War II History. So it's a great way to kind of keep myself focused to find to give myself something to do in retirement that is also productive and uh and fun because i really mm -hmm. enjoy doing it and if i could just pick out one story you sent a list of some of your stories uh remembering a workhorse the u.s coast guard cutter cushing which apparently recently was sunk by the russians as part of the ukrainian war so that is for another magazine called Military Officer. Uh, it's uh, a kind of an organizational magazine for the Military Officers Association of America. Um, they, they're a new uh, outlet for me. I really enjoy writing for them because they give me topics to, to write on that I don't necessarily know an awful lot about. Uh, I've worked with the Coast Guard, but I never really knew that they had patrol craft that at the end of their service with the Coast Guard, this particular um, vessel, a Coast Guard cutter called the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Cushing, was in the service of the U.S. Coast Guard for 20 years at least, kind of reached the end of its service life. They passed it on to the Ukrainian Navy as a patrol boat, and during the opening salvos of the war with Russia, Russian uh, missiles sunk this former Coast Guard vessel with all hands. So kind of a sad story. For much of your Army career, you worked with tanks, right? That was my uh, branch of service. Uh, I served in several armor and cavalry organizations. Cavalry essentially is, is, is mechanized warfare. Many of the articles that I've written for World War II history have featured armored uh, battle. There's also a story you've gotten. We're down to like 
not much time, uh, about baseball, and that's two words, reenactors. And as you might have guessed, I have an Amsterdam connection to this story, I think. But this is when the baseball was being developed in the 1800s and was played to some extent by the soldiers during the Civil War. It very much was. Um, you're not always fighting when you're a soldier. Um, there's, uh, you've got to find a way to kind of pass the time in between battles. And baseball was a relatively simple way of doing that for Civil War soldiers. And the rules are very different. Uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I can't talk about every single one. But you don't need a baseball glove to play 19th century rules baseball. Patrick Chasen has created a multimedia presentation, Wings of Victory, aircraft production in New York State during World War II. He's a retired 26-year U.S. Army officer, also with the National Guard, and now an author, historian. He lives in Scotia, New York. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.